0: Welcome to the Newson Health Menopause Podcast. I'm Dr. Louise Newson, a GP and menopause specialist, and I run the Newson Health Menopause and Wellbeing Centre here in Stratford upon Avon. So today I have with me a friend and colleague, Dr. Zoe Hudson, who's a GP and a menopause expert who works in the northwest and. I'm very excited because she's joined the Newson Health team to expand the clinic. So we now have access to women in the Northwest a lot easier than them coming down to my clinic in stratford upon avon So welcome, Zoe. Thank you. Lovely to be here, virtually. <laughs> virtually, of course, yes, because we're recording this in times of COVID. So obviously we're both at home, but we're doing this remotely. But we thought today we would focus more about a GP's perspective of the menopause because I was a GP for many years, um, Zoe's a GP, and it can be very easy for women to be disillusioned about their own menopause experience or, or a family member's menopause experience and be very negative about general practitioners and in fact as a GP it's very hard sometimes to diagnose the perimenopause and menopause and then it's also quite hard for them to be able to deliver the right treatment that's evidence-based so we just thought we'd talk through some of this reasoning. So Zoe, before we start, could you just enlighten me and tell me how much education that you received as an undergraduate and also a postgraduate about the menopause?
1: Well, I think at medical school, I really don't. I mean, I know it's quite a long time ago, but I don't remember menopause being mentioned at all. And then in my hospital training, again, I worked, I did do work on an um, obs and Gynae ward. And again, menopause wasn't mentioned. And although we don't necessarily think that it should be under the guise of gynecology because it's a systematic approach. That's why you would traditionally expect it to have been talked about. And then as a GP trainee, I was quite fortunate initially to have my trainer used to fit the hormone implants and was keen on HRT. But unfortunately, it was then just at the time of the WHI. So I I remember just having this brief six months lots of sort of healthy women and they were all on HRT and then suddenly it went and, and nobody really spoke
0: about it again and that was it. So this is very interesting so this is in 2002 as you say the WHI which is the Women's Health Initiative study which before this time women were generally given HRT most of the time and a lot of women were giving it for healthcare benefits as well so such as reduced risk of heart disease and osteoporosis and uh, certainly after hysterectomy women would almost routinely be given HRT wouldn't they?
1: Yeah, so it wasn't It was it wasn't an uncommon prescription. None of us queried it. And, and looking back, I mean, I was at the time working quite an affluent area, but I just remember these women looking incredibly healthy and all functioning very well. And then suddenly it just went and it was almost it became the unspoken. We don't go near this. And it was only years later, wasn't it, that they came out and said that that study really should
0: never have been published. Absolutely. With a very tiny apology. Yes, and we've talked about this study numerous times before, but the WHI, the Women's Health Initiative study, was basically looking at giving uh, very old types of HRT, ones that we don't really use now, to women who had been several years, some of them more than 10 years after their menopause, to see whether it had benefits in the longer term. But actually, a lot of the women were very unhealthy in the study, weren't they? So a lot of them had had heart disease, a lot of them were overweight or obese. So the data was very skewed and the results from it were misinterpreted and they were given to the press too early before they had been analysed properly. And actually, interestingly, an al- analysis of the data has shown that women who continued to take HRT for more than 14 years, actually had a lower risk of death from all causes, including from cancer. But initially, women were very scared. Healthcare professionals were very scared. And actually, those healthcare professionals were the ones that were teaching younger doctors, weren't they?
1: Yeah, this is what I was going to say. So a few years after that, I, I started the um, basic trainers course. And it was, so my cohort have now become the trainers. And we had this very skewed view. And again, it just was something that you could skip over quite neatly because although it is on the curriculum for GP trainees, the curriculum is vast. So you can find plenty of other things to teach around and not include menopause. It doesn't have standalone. It's not compulsory for GPs to be trained in it. And I think this
0: is another issue. Yeah, which is definitely sad because obviously the menopause affects all women if they live long enough, doesn't it? Um, but just talk us through a bit, Zoe, because the menopause isn't a disease, is it? So some women will be thinking, well, why do they need to be taught about it? Because it's not a disease, it's a natural process. So talk us through the importance of healthcare professionals knowing about the menopause.
1: Well, I think from a a GP training perspective, it's actually, I spoke to one of the associate deans from Manchester asking why it wasn't included in the training programme. And one of the reasons he gave was that it didn't fulfil the competences. Now, the competences for GP training are very clear and they cover a really broad range of topics from things like ethics to health promotion to clinical skills to consultation skills. And I just looked at him and said, "It's probably one of the few areas that cover all of those competences, and this is why it's so important because we're looking at. It's not just something that a few women go through. It affects things like their work. It affects so many systems, as you say. The estrogen receptors are absolutely everywhere. So it is looking at bone protection, at cardiovascular protection, at brain functioning, and I, I absolutely for. Very short moment speechless because I thought, how can you not see if you want these competencies covered? This is the absolute perfect topic for GP trainees to take
0: a really holistic view of women's lives. Which is so important because I think some people incorrectly think that the menopause is just defined by the end of periods. And quite rightly, that's how you diagnose it. To be officially menopausal, it's a year since your last period. Or if you have your periods artificially stopped by having your ovaries and your womb removed. But actually, it isn't that, is it? Once your periods have stopped, you're still menopausal. You still have low hormone levels, which will never be replaced unless a woman takes HRT. And so this is why it's so important to address. And as you quite rightly say, these estrogen receptors are all over our bodies. So actually, there's an argument that every specialty, so every doctor who's in any specialty should know about the menopause, don't you think?
1: Well, this is the other thing when I started to train up in it. And I think from medical school, I always had this view that somehow the consultants knew more than me because I was a GP. You start to read the letters from the consultants regarding menopausal care from all specialties. So I saw, I don't know how many women who had been diagnosed with fibromyalgia. And this was rheumatology. I said, did the rheumatologist ask you about your periods? And they said, no, why? And when you asked them, their periods had changed. And again, you with people who are going to cardiology with palpitations, and you say, "Did they?" So these were patients that I hadn't met before. And I'd say, "Well, did did the cardiologist sort of clock that you're forty seven or forty eight and had your periods changed?" No. And I think it's such an interesting topic, and this is why we need. Dan Danzbrink's campaign. We need to get it from medical students right the way through. It's this really strange thing that once you see it, it's almost like the the switch goes on. Yes. Suddenly start to join the dots. And this is this theme comes through a lot with what we talk about, doesn't it? This joining the dots Mm. for women to join the dots and the clinicians Mm. to join the dots and their partners and their work colleagues.
0: Yeah, and I think this is so important because we know how many appointments are wasted because women going back and forth with, like you say, their palpitations, their muscle, their joint pains, their recurrent urine infections, their headaches, their migraines. Some women are worried that they've got dementia because they can't remember properly. Yes, if no one's thinking about their periods or changing periods, then no one's going to Join the dots, like you say, and think about it's going to be related to the menopause and how, what the most efficient way of of it being treated. And the number of investigations women have is often inappropriate as well, which is a real drain on the NHS, isn't it?
1: And I think, yes. And I think the other thing, I mean, the joy of general practice. And I think I'm hoping that something has shifted I know that COVID is awful, but I'm I'm really hoping that something has shifted and we can get back to the essence of general practice because I know the appointments are very short and especially with the trainees, I think there is a real fear about addressing something like the in a 10-minute consultation. And I always used to say to them, it doesn't have to be addressed in one consultation. The patients aren't going to go away. So we used to to start off with, let's join the dots to start with. Many of these women that came in assumed that menopause would happen when they were much, much older. Mm. So Saying to them that I think you have symptoms of a hormone deficiency when they were in their early 40s would often come as a bit of a surprise. And so that was the consultation where you'd say, right, well, we've got some brilliant resources. We've got the Menopause Doctor website, the Haynes Manual, and send them off for the Climacteric Green score and say, go and read. Just go and read. And I'll book you back in next week and you can just tell me what you think. It doesn't have to be done in 10 minutes. this is one of the fears that the trainees have
0: and I think that's very important because I see a lot of women who say well my doctor says I can only have one appointment one problem and they don't know which problem to prioritize because they have so many symptoms and then some GPs will offer double appointments which is good but as you say it's often a, a sequence of appointments that people need because they need the right information they need the right knowledge and that will help them make the right decisions because it's very important isn't it that women receive individual individualised care for their menopause because a lot of us are going to live hopefully for decades being menopausal. So it's really important that this stage in our life is looked at seriously and appropriately because we've both been pregnant and we had excellent care when we were pregnant, saw a numerous number of healthcare professionals for, for a relatively short period of time in our lives and then suddenly we're menopausal for decades yet No one looks after us. It doesn't seem right.
1: I think there's another parallel there as well, because when you're pregnant, you're encouraged to go to groups and to talk to other women about experiences, aren't you, and share this. And it's known that it's you're going into unknown territory, and your peers can often be the best people to speak to. And yet, with menopause, I mean, I I spoke to someone the other day, and I, I wanted a photo with her. And she said, I was wearing my uh, Make Menopause Matter T-shirt. And she said, are you, are you implying something? And I thought, well, yes, because you you are quite clearly of an age where you will be menopausal. And I'm standing here with a great big slogan on my front because I'm not ashamed. Why would I be ashamed of it? It's natural. It's it, And this is what we, we need to move towards. And this is why we, we ask women to keep talking about it. it. It's not a shameful thing. It's natural. Yes. And we we need to start addressing it.
0: I think so. And it's also, we need to change the perception so it's not thought of as an old person's condition. And um, some of you might know I recently have done a podcast with Lorraine Candy where we're talking about changing the language associated with the menopause because a lot of younger women have menopause. And in fact, I spoke to someone in my clinic last week who's only 18. And she had um, a very unusual cancer when she was fifteen. Well, in fact, no, it was diagnosed so when she was thirteen before her period started. So she had chemotherapy and radiotherapy. So her periods had never started properly, and now they they're not there because um, her ovaries were damaged so much by her treatment. Yet no one had given her proper information about her menopause. So and she can't really talk to her friends because she's too young. Why would they know about the menopause? But actually we should all know about it, shouldn't we?
1: And I think this is, yeah, if we reframe it as a as a female hormone deficiency, mm. and again, when when I've done tutorials, if we call it that, you can see this little light bulb come on in her eyes. Oh, I, I get that. Mm. Right, okay. And you get that that can happen to all ages. Yes,
0: absolutely. And it's like we, as, as general practitioners, we see lots of women, don't we, who have had a thyroid deficiency. So they have an underactive thyroid and the thyroxine um, in the body affects cells all over. So the people can have um, symptoms such as weight gain, lethargy. They can have skin changes, hair changes because of their underactive thyroid. And we don't expect them to soldier on with their low thyroid, we give them thyroxine replacement, and they usually feel a lot better. And they also know that they continue their thyroxine replacement forever, because their thyroid will always be underactive. And this is the way that we need to think about the menopause, isn't it?
1: And I think that's another thing as well. I think there's a real fear. I think the if you go to the so the usual book that we use to prescribe things, is called the BNF. And I struggle to Find HRT in that the, the chapter, unfortunately, is not user friendly. Mm. And I think, again, so you're starting off from a point of uncertainty because you've never been taught about it. You then go to your big book that normally gives you some guidance, and it's impossible to try and find a sensible regime until you wrote the prescribing guidelines. They were quite difficult to find, there wasn't any rationale. And then there's this thing of, well, I've given you HRT, why isn't it working? Mm. Again, you wouldn't do that with diabetes and you wouldn't do that with thyroxine. Tinker around with it until you find the right level that suited the patient. Mm-hmm. But we have to t- start taking some of the fear out of that to get some sense back into it so they can approach it logically. But this is the problem. The resources haven't been there to go to.
0: Absolutely. And I think, like you say, the um, BNF, the British National Formula, is associated with warnings, isn't it? And so Mm -hmm. certainly in general practice, we're all computerised, so we use a computer system. So when we prescribe a type of HRT, it will come up with a warning, won't it? And the problem is, is there are different types, there are different doses of HRT. And certain types of HRT, for example, the oestrogen through the skin as a patch or gel, has no risk of clot. Yes, it warns you that there's a risk of clot when you try and prescribe. So this has got to be a barrier, hasn't it? For
1: yeah, no, so the, again, for the train sort of for the well for, for the trainees especially because I've I've had seen quite a few of them over the years. And so there's me sort of saying to them, go forth and right. You've now seen the symptoms. Go forth and prescribe. And the, as soon as they put a prescription, in, this great big red warning comes up, They mm. do do not proceed any further. And again, they've never been taught the difference between transdermal and oral. No, So it's it has to be. And again, with teaching as well, conditions such as diabetes, um, it would be the same with you. You were taught them over and over again at medical school and then you were taught them again. And then you were taught them probably three or four times a year during your GP training. Mm. And you become comfortable with them and, and you yes. see the effects and you see the results and then you learn a little bit more. So there are so many stumbling blocks, but I, I think. You've been doing the work with 14Fish, and that's a platform that all of the trainees are linked to. And I think that's going to be make a huge difference to this. That they will actually have evidence-based information in a range of forms. So I think videos are a really good way of learning. And it will give, just give them that backup
0: that what they are doing is the, the right thing to do. I think that's so important because certainly whenever I lecture and teach healthcare professionals, a lot of them... have the confidence they know quite a lot of the theory but they still don't have the confidence to put it into practice and as you say we're working with a company called 14 fish to develop a menopause education program that a lot of people will be able to um, access online so it will make it very easy and we've done lots of consultations with actresses pretending to be patients so they can see how much they can get out of a 10-minute consultation so, we're really excited about this being delivered because I feel really sad for a lot of GPs, but also nurses, pharmacists, other healthcare professionals. Because a lot of people I speak to really want to help these women, yet they don't know how to. Whereas they know how to manage diabetes or high blood pressure or heart disease, but if they've never been taught or they've been taught incorrectly, then it's very hard to change and it's very Difficult, isn't it, to keep up to date with guidelines in general practice because there are so many. Yeah, and I think the other
1: important factor in this, and something that was um, has become, rightly so, much more popular over the last sort of five to ten years, are the expert patients. Mm. And I think we we really want all women to become expert patients in this. It's, it is it should be a shared consultation. I think it isn't at the moment because of all the. Issues that we've talked about, and this is something that I would always sort of say to people: go and read, read as much as you can. Read the the excellent book "Estrogen Matters" that you yes. did on one of your podcasts. That's an absolutely brilliant place. There are so many podcasts that you can listen to, so that you can get so much information, and you can also take a big part of deciding what your care is going to be. And I think, again, it's we, we see lots of women on your social media sites that have signposted their GPs. And I'm sure the GPs are equally grateful to have finally found mm. something that's evidence based.
0: And I think it's really important, isn't it? So the Royal College of General Practitioners are very vocal about patient experts and patients being empowered in all diseases, because it really makes a difference to the consultation and I'm sure you're the same. Um, over the years, I've had people that come with Daily Mail cuttings because they've read that there's a transformational treatment for a really obscure condition and it's been done in a study of three people in an obscure place in America and they want that treatment. And my heart sinks and I think, oh my goodness. Whereas there are other people that come and they've read some of the studies or they've read the nice guidance or they've read some really good literature and then the level of consultation that you have is very different, isn't it? Because as a doctor, it's very important that we're not paternalistic, that we share decision making and we share uncertainty. And certainly a lot of women come to my clinic and they're really scared of HRT. They don't want it. They say they want something natural. They want something that's not going to cause breast cancer. They want something that's going to help, but only in the short term Um, because they've read so much wrong information. And actually once they've be given the right information, they often say, my goodness, I had no idea that HRT was derived from the yam, the root vegetable. I had no idea it was just replacing the hormones and how safe it is to use in the long term. And so, like you say, it's very important, isn't it, that women, but also their partners, their children, their relatives, are given the right information so they can share the decision-making process with the healthcare professional.
1: Yeah, I think so. And I think, again, once you put it all into perspective I think many women are shocked that having a glass of wine each night carries more of a risk of breast cancer and carrying a bit of weight will double your risk and these are still all very small numbers Mm. but what we look at is that whole thing of well this is the stepping stone so if we get you on the right HRT you will feel better And then it's the next consultation, because at the first one, they feel so rotten that trying to talk them into changing their diet is pointless a lot of the time. Mm. And then by the time they come back, they feel so much better. And it's then sort of saying, well, let's have a look at these. You're still a little bit overweight. So Let's just discuss what you can do to address this and change your nutrition. And Mm -hmm. lots of them by that time have cut down their alcohol, haven't they? Because they feel so much better. They
0: don't need to. Absolutely. And a lot of women I speak to are actually scared of taking HLT because they think they're going to put on weight. And as a lot of you who are listening know that it's very common for women to put on weight during the perimenopause and menopause because of the metabolic changes that occur in our bodies. And often people put on weight in the midline and find it really hard to shift so as a doctor if I sit there and say you need to change your diet you need to lose weight they would just cry because they have tried often but once they have their replacement hormones and they start working for them these metabolic changes are reversible so women often find it a lot easier don't they to lose weight
1: yeah and the other thing as well that we have to touch on even though it's a huge frustration to us both is the testosterone Mm. Which is, it's, it should come, it's the the triad, isn't it, on, on the, um, yes. the vaginal preparations. But this is another, we're so far behind where we should be. And again, I think with all the enthusiasm in the world, I think we have to accept that it is going to be a long, slow journey to get it into the NHS because it should be. Mm. I was nervous about prescribing it I sat there I'd read about it for a couple of years and had all the usual fears that I was going to just have all these bearded women coming back in because again I had no backup I had no guidelines to go to I'd never been taught about it so I thought well it only comes from these specialist clinics therefore it must be really hard to prescribe and monitor and then you start prescribing it and think it's the same monitoring as thyroxine. what's all this around it where what's what's driving this and you go right back and it's back to the beginning again that nobody recognizes
0: that women need it absolutely because a lot of women or a lot of people incorrectly think that testosterone is only important in men Whereas actually in women, we produce more testosterone than estrogen before the menopause. Yet, as you say, I certainly wasn't taught anything about it. And neither were you and neither are most doctors. And it was only the last few years that I've started prescribing it and seeing the transformational results it can have. And then I think it's absolutely outrageous that we're not allowed to prescribe our own
1: hormone on the NHS. I and I think this is important to say, because I know women get really, really frustrated with this, but I think each of us in our own area, so I've approached the Manchester Formulary. E. A friend of mine is working in Wales at the moment, and I know you're um, campaigning as well, that there are lots of us that are really trying to get this addressed. Mm. And it's a bit of a postcode lottery, so we know that Mm. women uh, it's not even considered I, I couldn't find it on the formary and we're going to at least try and get it changed to the status that if a specialist has initiated it the GP can continue with it which will get GPs
0: comfortable
1: with the concept
0: yeah, absolutely. And and I hope going forwards, the MHRA will agree to it being licensed because we used to have a licensed preparation of a patch a while ago. And there is this cream that we both use that's made for women in Australia, which we're hoping will have the license. And I'm hoping maybe even in the future, some campaigning from women might make a difference as well, because it's very important that this is on the agenda and women's health has been neglected in so many ways. And it shouldn't be, should it? There's no reason that we shouldn't have the right care and treatment just
1: because we're getting older. And I think this, again, with the trainees, once they have seen the results with a few patients, when we've, they've been through these consultations and they have got them on the right preparations of HRT, and they come in and they just sort of say, this, this woman, has just turned her life around, mm. work, her relationship is better, she's got more energy, and it, it doesn't take many consultations to get this. And they need the ongoing support with that. And and the more GPs that are skilled up, the more women that are not – it is. And I, I, I like the fact in one way that it is us all working together in this. It isn't something that is just the medics trying to do, that women realise they are just as important in this. Information to the GPs and speaking to their friends in really – getting to know all of this evidence-based stuff that is out there now we've got resources and it's going worldwide which is wonderful
0: (laughs) well it's so important it's it really is important that we are not neglected and that women feel that they've been listened to as well because i feel so sad in my clinic when i hear stories about women who have had to give up their jobs, their partners, you know, they've even thought about ending their lives because of the effects the lack of hormones are having, especially on their brains, yet they're not receiving the right treatment. So I really hope some of the work that we're all doing together and joining together in this way makes us a lot stronger and more powerful. So watch out, those of you that are listening. Um, (laughs) And so, you know, I'm hoping, I feel very frustrated a lot of the time, but I do secretly feel quite excited because i think things are changing and and i hope the generation of women that are growing with us will really take this forward and notice some changes over the next few years so
1: yeah i think the tide is turning isn't it i hope so so we just keep see it because we're all locked in but the tide is <laughs>
0: So I'm very grateful for you giving up your time today to talk about this, and I and I hope it will make people understand a bit how hard it is for GPs out there, and how how keen they really are to learn. And we are going to help them, and going forward, we'll tell you more about our education programme as it's launched. So. Before I finish, Zoe, do you mind just giving three take-home tips to women who perhaps are struggling with getting the right help that they feel that they should have from their own GP? I think the first one,
1: as I said, was just read as much as you possibly can, listen to podcasts, get the information. You've got the Menopause Doctor website. You've got Diane Dan's has some excellent stuff on her website as well. So really know the treatment that you are looking for. that's the evidence-based and then you've got resources that you can take to your GP. I think the symptom checker is absolute key. If you can even take that to your GP, either the climacteric green one or the one on Diane's, GPs may not, I had never seen that before and that was a, a real turning point, having a list of all the things to look out for. So if we can get women to share that with, us, with all of their GPs, even that, Would achieve so much. It starts to open up the thinking, and then the third one has to be get your soapboxes out. So if you have learned about this, you feel better on it. Please tell people. I tell everyone. I'll be at the checkout trying to shoehorn a conversation about menopause in. The postman gets a conversation about menopause. Women, when you see them, they want
0: to talk, and we need to take the stigma out of this. Brilliant I love it absolutely love it so for those of you who want to find the questionnaire if you search questionnaire on my menopause doctor website then it will come up and as many of you know we're developing an app called balance so if you go to the website balance-app.com then um, you can sign up for information there and that will have the questionnaire on it so it'll be very easy to track remotely on your phone so lots of food for thought we'll keep carrying on our soapboxes and spreading (laughs) the word and thanks so much Zoe for your time today but also thanks for joining our team because we're very excited having you on board I know it's it's,
1: I'm quite liking the virtual chat from Manchester rather than driving down Stratford all
0: the time yeah so thanks so so much all right take care bye bye bye. for more information about the menopause please visit our website www.menopause.com Dot